It's the A-Side B-Side Podcast with Brooke and Adam. That wasn't bad. All right. So this week, I think it's going to be, it's my turn to start, right? Yeah, it's my turn to start. It is your turn. Yes. So first, before I get into the story, because the story is wild and we have a lot to unpack, I'm telling you, I have pages and pages of notes. But I want to tell you about this show that I watched. It's on uh, HBO. It's called I'll Be Gone in the Dark. It's the story mm. of Michelle McNamara, who was married to Patton Oswalt. I believe you know. Oh, yeah, about yeah, her. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like her name doesn't ring bells. But then as soon as I hear it's about the... Yes. Right? Yes. It's 100% about the Golden State Killer and her pursuit of him and the book she wrote about him. And I got to tell you, if it was not for her and her, I just have to say, obsession with this killer, they probably would not have caught him. Well, he'd been, what, it was like 20, 30 years? Yeah, it, it just spanned like, decades. It, it, I want to say like almost four decades. Yeah, I think it was four decades it spanned. And it was just completely cold. And she was just, she was like a dog with a bone. And she would not let up. And any little tidbit morsel of information, she tracked it down, she hunted it, and she just went after it. And man, I got to tell you, this this docu-series is amazing. And I... This is on it's on HBO. It's on HBO. And Patton Oswalt, I give him a lot of credit because I know it can't be easy to relive all of this, you know, because she is deceased now. He's remarried. He's in a good place. Right. But obviously he is still in love with his first wife. Right. And and this, I mean, I guess I would look at it from a different angle. What better way to honor her than to continue to talk about something she cared so deeply. Exactly. And I believe that's exactly why he did this. And he made sure that the book that she wrote got out and he did this series. Watching the series that you can still tell which death is always going to impact you. And you can even tell there's a couple of times where he just has to take a moment and, and compose himself. And that's why I say I give him so much credit because he is completely honoring her. But at the same time, I know that while he loves doing this, it's also really painful right like it's it's hard to talk about the past yeah i don't know how you do that yeah so uh, kudos to her for being so doggone set in her ways and being stubborn and digging in on this and then kudos to him for giving us her story i'm it's amazing so and it's really good news for me because i accidentally signed up for hbo max two nights ago because i wanted to watch stuber um which accidentally? is uh, how do you accidentally sign up for a subscription service uh i i hit yes because i wanted to watch the movie and i told myself it's okay it's a seven day trial and i'm gonna forget and i'm gonna be signed up for hbo for the next three years but really love stuber so now i have another thing to watch we could just justify me forgetting to cancel my seven-day free soup. Well, there you go. All right. The story I have for you today is another one that spans decades. It's the story of Harold and Thelma Swain. Harold and Thelma Swain were an adorable couple. They were married 43 years. He's 63. or He's 66. She's 63. I mean, the, everybody in their little small town in Georgia just adores them. Well, mm. one Monday night, 
they're at that their church where Harold was a deacon. I should go back and tell you, Thelma Homemaker, she just absolutely loved taking care of home, but she always made sure everything was done before Guiding Light came on, which that just reminds me of so many people that I knew growing up. Yeah, I got to be done for my stories. You know, I just love that. <laughs> so completely unrelated, but also along that line, there's a bar in the Twin Cities that just changed ownership. And they had to change ownership because they had another owner previously who would allow people to come in at 10 a.m and watch prices right <laughs> and the new owner wouldn't let people come in and watch prices right oh how dare he and so the bar basically had to sell because people stopped showing up well i don't blame like, them. If you mess if you mess with people's shows right you're gonna pay the price the stories prices right let's make a deal don't mess with it uh-uh. mm-hmm. so i get that she guiding light everything's done by that exactly uh thelma was very funny she was empathetic she was extremely loyal harold loved to fish at the little scintilla river he was the kind of man that would stop and check on other people just because you know checking on the neighbors hey how you doing do you need anything just because he loved people mm-hmm. on monday March 11th of 1985, Harold and Thelma and 11 others, there were 10 women and a young child, were at Rising Daughters Baptist Church. That was Harold and Thelma. They were there for their women's, it was a women's missionary meeting. It happened weekly. It was on a rotating basis. They'd go through the different churches. And that week, it just happened to be at Rising Baptist. Mm-hmm. About 845, between 845 and 850, one of the members ended up having to leave. She had to uh, go get her daughter. And on the way out, an unknown man comes into the church and he asks to speak to Harold. He doesn't mention him by name. He just kind of points to him and says, I I need to speak to him. So she goes and gets him and Harold comes over and asks him, you know, what do you need? What's going on? The conversation isn't super clear, but whatever happened in that conversation resulted in a tussle. The men get into a struggle, four shots are fired. Mm. Harold drops to the ground. In the midst of all this, Thelma sees what's going on with her dear husband and she runs to his aid. She's also shot once. Well, the other members see and hear what's going on. Mm -hmm. So like, there are people around them, right? Yes, so this is kind of in the vestibule, the front hallway of the church while they're all in the sanctuary. But it's a little bitty, tiny church. I mean, it's the size of a house, really. So they see and hear what's going on. Well, of course, it's it's all women inside, except for Harold and a, a small little seven-year-old girl. They do what we would all do. They hide. Yeah, I'd hide. One of I them hide. goes... I hide when the UPS guy comes. <laughs> for anybody knocks on your door, you're like, hey, what? No. I'm like, I don't know you. So one of them, she heard the gunshots. She leaves and she drives to a convenience store while in the inside they're trying to call police. They can't because the phone line has been cut. He cut the phone line? He cut the phone line. That's some 80s movie bad guy stuff right there. Yeah. So they get to the convenience store. She talks to the manager. The manager calls the police. They drive back. At first, he takes his shotgun, but the young clerk at the store was like, hey, in case something happens or this guy comes this way, I I need something. So he leaves the shotgun. They drive back to Rising Daughters Baptist Church. And he's like, where's the shooter? She's like, I don't know. So they have no idea what they're walking back into. Right. Could be anything. Guy could be like just lying in wait. Exactly. Well, of course, the women inside, they're like, what do we do? One of them grabs a broom and she's you know, walking around looking for this guy and she doesn't see him. But outside, there's a little sporty brown car that she sees. 
Okay. Well, eventually, you know, after a few minutes, she's looking around the church. She doesn't see the guy. She looks outside. Car is gone. Also, can we just, like, give it up for this lady who found a broom and decided <laughs> to go, like, investigate? I know. That's like, that's a broom. Part. What are you, like a ninja turtle? <laughs> like, that's not going to help you. But she's like, no, I got this. She's like, look, you messed with my Harold and my Thelma. I got to take you out with this broom. <laughs> like, I got a broom. It's going to be real wispy up in here. <laughs> so police arrive, and when they get there, they find the bullet casings. They find two pairs of eyeglasses. One of them, the prescription was checked. It belonged to Harold. The other did not belong to anyone in the church. Something about the glasses. They were really thick. They had really thick lenses. The ear pa- the earpieces didn't match. And they were kind of pockmarked like somebody had used a torch on them or something. Okay. That, I don't do that with my glasses, but, you know, teach their own. It was almost like someone had taken different glasses and kind of put them together. And, like, fused them together? Yeah. I mean, just, I mean, like, I got two different prescriptions for each eye, but I also don't have a blowtorch. Well, it's probably a good thing you don't. Because <laughs> you might be dangerous with a blowtorch. It's, it's very good I don't have a blowtorch. <laughs> I wouldn't have a house. This little church that sits... On Highway 17 in Georgia. Uh, it's frequented by hitchhikers often looking for a meal. And, you know, Thelma and Harold. Harold's a really great guy. He's always trying to just help people. So initially it, it was thought to be a robbery. But $300 was found in Harold's pocket. And, of course, you had the cut phone line. Which right. indicates probably not just a regular robbery. Right. And if, if you're a robber, you usually take the $300 unless you're really bad at your job. Exactly. So this was a really bad robber. He's so the, the worst. Like the, zero stars. Exactly. His Yelp review is very bad. Yeah, do not hire this guy to rob someone. He will leave the money. <laughs> so the witnesses inside the church, they all got a, a glimpse of him and they were able to provide a description. He was a Caucasian male in his late 20s, early 30s, in the year 1985. He was Mm. between 5'6 to 5'8, medium build, dirty blonde to light brown, collar, shoulder length hair. So the police use all of these witness descriptions. They have a sketch artist come in, and they have several different sketches. So what they do is they kind of combine all the different sketches and make one composite sketch. It's like everybody remembers a little bit, so... It's like when you when you watch a movie with three friends and then you fall asleep and they all try to tell you about the movie, it ain't going to be right. All right. So you've got the Georgia Bureau of Investigations, Agent Joe Gregory, and then you've got Detective Butch Kennedy working on the case. Which, I mean, if I was writing a story that happened in the 1980s, those are the two made-up names that I would use. <laughs> Don't they sound like the ones from last week where you're like, they have to be police officers because of their names. Joe Kennedy and Butch something. (laughs) Like, just throw anything after Butch and we're like, oh, that's a cop in the That's a cop name. (laughs) I apologize to all police officers who listen to this show. It's true. It's a cop name. (laughs) All right. So this happens in March. A couple of months go by. There's no major leads. So, well, for for just my brain. So they found the glasses. 
-hmm. The bodies are still there, though, right? Oh, yes. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They walk in, the bodies are are on the ground. I thought there was like an alien thing for a second. I I felt that was kind of (laughs) self-explanatory, but yeah, they were there. Right. No, you you know me. (laughs) I'm always going to assume the weird. (laughs) Couple months go by, there's no leads. There's just nothing happening. Then in July, on July 5th, the police in Telfair County, which is about 135 miles away, stop a car on a minor traffic violation. They do a search of the car, and it reveals weapons in the trunk. The car that they stop belongs to Donnie Barrington. Well, Donnie, upon further investigation, it was revealed that Donnie allegedly bragged about killing a black preacher and his wife. When the police get him down to the police station and they start investigating, excuse me, interrogating him, he's like, no, 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 I, I, I didn't say that. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know where you got that. I didn't say that. He took a polygraph, which I have issues with polygraphs. He did fail. Here's the thing. Polygraph tests themselves are extremely unreliable, so much so that they don't really even allow them in court. So if... But we- but we see them in all the TV shows. I know, but they are so unreliable. So if someone ever says to you, do you want to take a polygraph test? No, because they're very unreliable. You cannot trust them at all. Well, I, I've seen a lot of TV shows. I just have to bite my, uh, my inner lip when I'm trying to lie, and then it will throw off the reaction. I've seen you can put tacks in your shoes. No, it's not going to work. <laughs> <laughs> but they're unreliable. Who knows? It, they are very unreliable. But... When you hear of a bad guy like Donnie Barrington and you're like, he failed. You're like, yeah, I knew it because he's a scumbag. So it's kind of this double-edged sword. Yeah. And if they're not admissible in court in a lot of places, then why are we even doing them? You know? Exactly. I mean, I guess we've got the equipment, so why not? Why waste our money? I mean, we got to use it, right? I mean, sometimes I would send a fax when we had a fax machine at work just because I was like, well, we got a fax machine. (laughs) And then people are like, we still have that? I'm like, yeah. We also have a landline. It's the only way this all works. Both of those things are outdated. <laughs> all right. So, um, oh, what you drinking? Uh, I'm, I'm having a Kickstart uh, from Mountain Dew. Okay. Uh, if they want to sponsor us, that would be great as well. We love it. So not to go completely off topic, but back when we did morning shows, uh, I would drink like four to five Mountain Dews a show. Per morning. Yes. Yeah. And that was bad. Like, my teeth are not going in the Smithsonian because uh, they are not wooden, but they are also no longer enamel. <laughs> so <laughs> I have, I've, I've gone to the Kickstart, which is like a 20-ounce Mountain Dew has 290 calories. That is like more than 20% of your daily intake of calories. And I would have four of those, which is a very bad idea. So the Kickstart only has 80, which is much better. But it, and it also has 100% of vitamin C. So... Again, Mountain Dew, if you'd like to sponsor us, please. Absolutely. Drop us a line. <laughs> I mean, I've been, I've been sending you emails forever, Mountain Dew, but it's okay. <laughs> All right. So Donnie Barrington was the first suspect. Uh, he did take a, a polygraph test. He failed. They compared Donnie and the sketches. It proved inconclusive. So they brought eyewitnesses. They brought one eyewitness in to a lineup. The, yeah, because people saw this guy. Exactly. So they brought her into Jacksonville and she saw Donnie and she looked at the boots and she said, well, I recognize the boots, the boots that he's got on and the boots that the man that came into the church had on are the same. But that was all she could recognize. She couldn't conclusively say 
he was the same man in the church. Yeah, I don't think you can convict somebody on their kicks. Even as much as we'd want to, it's not mm. going to happen. No. So that is a lead that doesn't pan out. So Donnie gets released. Donnie gets released. The well runs dry. Mm. There's a couple of names that come up. Uh, Eric Spar, his name comes up. He's got an alibi. Says he was at work. They call his boss. He gives his boss his name as Donald Mobley. He gives Donald's date of birth, his social security number, his home address, his work address. Donald Mobley. I don't know my boss's social security number. I don't either. I don't want to know my boss's social security number because that could lead to too many issues. That seems like an overshare there, Donnie. I don't even know my boss's date of birth until everybody at the office is like, oh, you know, it's their birthday. And I'm like, oh, right. Yeah, but, but you don't know the year. No. Mm-hmm. I don't. And I'm like, are we all getting a card or what's going on here? Okay. Can I throw in $5 on the donuts? <laughs> right. <laughs> it's always my thing. It was like, oh, I forgot. Here's some money. I care. <laughs> well, they interview Eric Spar and his alibi checks out. They call his boss. His boss says, yes, he was at work that day. He worked overnight until the morning. Boom. He's ruled out as a suspect. Mm-hmm. So then we don't have anything for a couple of years. Then in 1988, this new, really cool television program starts Unsolved Mysteries. Unsolved Mysteries. Unsolved Mysteries with Robert Stack. And These in mysteries are unsolved. 1988, November of 1988, their story appears on Unsolved Mysteries. Georgia, population 825, is a predominantly black community nestled in the Baptist Bible Belt. Lumber, farming, and a paper mill provide the income for this small isolated area over 35 miles from the nearest big city, Jacksonville, Florida. For years, Rising Daughters Baptist Church has served not only as a place of worship, but also as a social center for the small township. But on March 11, 1985, this quiet community was shattered by violence. The quiet sanctity of Rising Daughters Church was violated by the brutal double murder of Harold and Thelma Swain. Harold Swain was a well-respected deacon of the church, a member of the county jury commission, and a spokesperson for the black community. Thelma Swain was also closely involved with church affairs. Harold and Thelma had been married for over 43 years. The, it's one of the early episodes. It's season, it's season one, episode six. So it's still early on. And this is a time when they're still using the actual people that have been a part of whatever has happened. And they're having them reenact these scenes instead of actors. Yeah, they can't, they can't afford like actors to reenact. No, nah, not yet. That comes later seasons once, you know, everybody's like, oh, this show is a good show. Right. Here's a couple of dollars. Robert Stack is standing in the church. He's standing in the vestibule at the spot where Thelma and Harold were shot. And he's holding 
a pair of glasses. Here's the thing. They're not props. They have the actual glasses. Like the actual, like, from evidence glasses. From evidence glasses. And uh, Butch, when he saw this, he was like, what is happening? How did he get those? Where is the chain of evidence? Nobody really knew how Robert got these glasses. And it's kind of like, well, if we had any fingerprints, guess what? Robert Stack is now the killer. Yeah. Robert (laughs) Stack is the guy. His fingerprints are all over those. (laughs) After this episode airs, tons and tons and tons of tips pour in. They all lead to dead ends. It it gets nowhere. They're like, I had glasses like that once. I made my own glasses too. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so we go dead. Case goes cold again for several years. So that that episode aired in 1988. We don't get another lead. Two thousand. So twelve like years later. It's, it's a long horrible, time. a horrible, horrible time. In two thousand, we get some information. Somebody calls a tip line on Dennis Perry. See Dennis Perry was dating a woman that was nicknamed, I think I'm going to get her nickname wrong, but I think it was called, she was Buzz. That was her nickname. And Buzz and uh, That is Perry. a horrible nickname for a woman. <laughs> I'm is. just saying that right now. Unless bad. she has a very short haircut. Buzz and Dennis, they dated for a mm. while. B&D, as they're known. D and <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so let me go back real fast, Adam. So back in 1992, Butch Kennedy, who was the detective on the case, Butch got fired. I remember. Oh. Butch is fired. Yeah. Bad day for Butch. You're out of here, buddy. You didn't get this case solved. You got to go. And it was pretty much the only case he was working on. So like a long time. (laughs) Yeah, for a very long time. Like Butch, come on, like find something, buddy. Six years later, six years later, the sheriff rehires Dale Bundy. Dale is given a one-year contract with no guarantee of a renewal. He's given this case exclusively because it's going on 13 years. It's like, come on, man. It was on a TV show. Like, we got to get this solved. Exactly. So you've got GBI agent Gregory. He's still the lead with the case, but he broke his back. So he's kind of I'm, out of the picture, which do, means do we know how he broke his back. Was this like a I don't know gymnastics injury or uh, it, it doesn't matter. It, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going to look it up. We don't care. You can look it up. You tell us if you find how he broke his back because it really doesn't pertain to the case. He yeah, broke his back. Fair. So Dale, Bundy, I, I always get lost in the minutia. I shouldn't do that. Like <laughs> the stuff doesn't matter. I, I should I should just be quiet. <laughs> so Bundy. Is working this case by himself. And now, remember, he's only got a year contract. And he is gung-ho about finding a person. Some sort of suspect. Yes. Something. So Bundy talks to Cora Fisher, who was in the church. Mm-hmm. And he asks Cora. if she thinks she knows who killed the Swains. And she says, oh, I don't think I know. She says she learned shortly after the Unsolved Mysteries episode, there was a white lady that came to see her and showed her a photo of a man and asked if that was the gunman. She said she took one look at that photo and she fainted because it was him. And she didn't mention this 
Why? She was too afraid. He's a gunman. He already killed two people right in front of her. She feels That's like right. if... She doesn't want to put herself in danger. Right. So, Miss Cora, she witnessed two of her friends get shot. So, she's thinking she names this man. He's probably going to come for her. Right. And who knows if this, like, lady that shows up at her house and shows the picture wasn't just trying to intimidate her, too. Like Exactly. Exactly. That would be, that would be, the, that would be the movie script. So, she said, I'm not going to tell you his name, but I'll give you a hint. She said, this man's grandfather used to live in a White House on Dover Bluff Road. That's when Dale Bundy realized, hey, wait a minute. I know exactly who she's talking about. She's talking about Dennis Perry. Perry was a suspect. He was mm. suspect number three. He was cleared years earlier when Butch Kennedy and Gregory were still working on the case. They right. interviewed him. He had an alibi. He was at work. He worked several hundreds of miles away it would have taken a long time to get to where he was and to, this know. was the guy who knew his boss's social security number and birthday which is just weird no 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 that was that was uh, eric spar oh it's a different guy this is this is a different guy this is I should be, the guy I should that be was this is the guy that was dating buzz oh that's right buzz lovely okay. girl so he had an alibi he had been cleared earlier but all the documentation from the case about him was gone. Hmm. No one can explain what happened or why. Bundy said he didn't really take notes. He just remembers that he wrote stuff down in the case file. Whatever. Three... It doesn't seem like proper procedure. No, at all. At all. Well, a couple of weeks into Dale Bundy's investigation, he talks to Jane Beaver, Buzz's mom. Jane is 59 at the time, and she said that she knew Perry because he dated her daughter off and on. Mm. They dated off and on for a few years. They dated, and the thing about Dennis is he never really had a car of his own. He never really had a place of his own. He lived with his mom. He was always hitching a ride. His neighbor would give him a ride to and from work. When he was dating Buzz, she would give him rides to and from wherever they were going. So He's a free spirit. Very free spirit, which is another reason that was kind of like well how could he have done this he doesn't even have a car he would have had to arrange a car he would have had to driven all these miles and he would have had to come back home and drop the car off and have been ready for work at 5 30 in the morning i mean that, that sounds like a lot of planning that doesn't really vibe with free spirit exactly and remember this murder happened about 8 50 at night so it really would not have given dennis the time but mm -hmm. bundy said I'm going to look at him again, especially because Jane Beaver, remember, Buzz's mom. Okay. So I have to ask this really stupid question. Does that mean her name is Buzz Beaver? Oh, my gosh. I guess it would mean that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I can't remember. I can't remember I just, her name, her real name. I think her name was nickname was like Buzz because she was always like buzzing around or something. Yeah. Yeah. But and I may I'm, have that wrong, but I guarantee everything else is right. I just can't remember her nickname. But okay. That's fair. I just, I couldn't let it pass that someone may be called Buzz Beaver. <laughs> All right. So Jane tells Dale Bundy that her daughter and Perry had broken up and Perry, mm -hmm. Perry was constantly stopping by Jane's house. He was always checking on Jane, but it was really more kind of seeing if Buzz was, because she had moved out of the area and they figured that long distance really wasn't going to work. Yeah. They couldn't really well, see each other like yeah. they wanted. 
So long distance is hard, especially when you're potentially a murderer. <laughs> so he was constantly stopping by Jane's house and checking on her. And she said about three weeks before the murder, he stopped by the house and he told her that uh, Harold Swain, he had asked Harold to borrow money from him and Harold laughed in his face and he retorted, mm-hmm. I'm going to kill that N word. That sounds like motive. It does sound like motive. Not a law and order. Well, so they don't get anything on Dennis for a little while. Because remember, this was, because remember, Dale Bundy took over in 1992. Right. And this is a substantial period of time after the TV show and after the actual event. Right. So, like, we're dealing with, like, old data. Exactly. Because the murder was in 85. The TV show was in 88. We're in 92. So uh, Bundy is looking at Perry and he's looking at him and he talks to the old detective and the GBI and they're like, no, 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 no. We cleared him, but he just can't let it go. He's like, like we said, a dog with a bone. Yeah. It's like something's up. So he keeps pursuing and pursuing and pursuing him. Well, eventually he just decides this is my guy. This is him. Now, the only evidence they had, they had the bullets, they had the glasses Dennis Perry does not wear glasses. He has no prescription. But they, they kind of leave that, they, they kind of shoo-shoo that away. And in 2000, January 13th. So, so this is 2000. So eight years after Bundy gets the one-year contract. Now remember, murder at 85, TV show 88. Mm-hmm. Bundy comes on the case in 92. January 13th of 2000. Perry is indicted. He was living in Jacksonville, Florida with his wife of nearly seven years. Bundy shows up at his place like, surprise, I'm here to arrest you. Uh, I got you, bitch. (laughs) Dennis lays out his alibi. He says he was in Atlanta when the murders happened because several months before the murders had happened, he had fallen out of a tree and he had like fractured his back. So he was at his mom's house recuperating. Right, because he's a Dr. Seuss character. (laughs) <laughs> well bundy Who said falls out of a tree? i have no idea but that's what happened so bundy okay. said while he was talking to perry that dennis mentioned that harold had the hands of the strong hands of a wood pulper bundy noted that's Which that's actually in my tinder profile that's a really that's a, <laughs> bundy thought that's a really weird thing to know about harold especially if you're claiming you don't know him personally right so January 13, 2000, Dennis Perry, Dennis Arnold Perry is indicted. Georgia Bureau of Investigations agent Ron Rhodes is brought in to help Dale Bundy with the case. Now, like all the all these dudes names just really Ron Rhodes. Ron Rhodes at your service. He he came down the highway. <laughs> Ron and Dale interrogate Dennis. But there is no camera. There is no video recording of any kind. There is no audio recording of any kind. There's only... That sounds super fishy. Exactly. There's only their notes. Ron claims that Perry said some very damning things in this interrogation, including the fact that he rode a motorcycle to the county with his brother days before the shooting. And he could have been at the church, but he could not remember. Rhodes... Rhodes asked Perry if the gun went off by accident. Perry said yes. Rhodes, they're giving him an out. Don't give him an out. 
but check this out though. This is all there's no actual evidence of this conversation. Rhodes says right. he then asks Perry if he was scared that this day was coming, and Perry said yes. Then he said, Perry says to him, You're trying to put words in my mouth. Finally, Ron Rhodes asks Dennis Perry if he'd like to make a statement, and Dennis says no. Dennis Perry's attorney, along with Perry, say that Ron Rhodes' account of things that have happened are inaccurate, but there's no way to prove it because there's no recording. So now we just got like, he said, he said, and some notes. And some more he said, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the trial approaches. Perry is offered a deal to plead guilty to voluntary manslaughter. And the DA would seek a 10-year sentence with credit for time served. Because now, remember, he was arrested in 2000. The trial is set to begin in 2003. So in 2003, before the trial, they ask him, do you want to take a deal? And Perry says, no. They, they say, you'll get 10 years with credit for three years served. And mm -hmm. I'll see to it that you're eligible for parole in two weeks. Two weeks! Two weeks? Two weeks he would have been eligible for parole. But and he said no? Dennis said no because he wanted a full acquittal. He has always, he stood by his time, so he turned down the deal. Trial begins February 10th of 2003. Mm -hmm. During the trial, Dale Bundy says that Perry definitely said he was at the crime scene. Now remember, Ron Rhodes said that Perry said, I could have been, but I can't really remember. And could have maybe sort of. I don't remember. Maybe possibly it could have happened. It was 18 years ago. Right. So, of course, we've got this discrepancy already happening in the trial because Ron Rhodes stands by what he said in his report that he said mm -hmm. he could have, whereas Dale Bundy is saying, no, he said he was absolutely, absolutely there. Miss Cora, the one who identified him through the picture, was too frail to come to the trial. So yeah, because at this point, she's got to be... Oh, she's like she's older. She's much, much older. Like, well, we don't yeah. know how old she was when the murders happened, but we're assuming. Murder happened in 85. This we're is 2003. Even if she was 40, 50 at the time, she's in she's yeah. advanced in age. And she's and a, she was probably older than that. Right. So she's in a nursing home and she was given a deposition at her nursing home, which was read in court. She recognized Perry from the photo that was shown, shown to her by Jane Beaver. During the deposition, Dennis Perry's attorney showed Cora a photo of Donnie. Now, remember, Donnie Barrington was suspect number one. It was the first dude. It was the very yeah. first dude that was pulled over on a, a minor violation, traffic violation. Miss Cora identified him as the killer. So now we've got another issue in the trial. Yeah, now it's all convoluted. So from here, Perry's attorneys are trying to place this murder on Donnie Barrington. No one really thinks anything else about Eric Spar? Oh. No one can account for the hairs that were found in the glasses because, remember, Dennis doesn't wear glasses. So they right. weren't his. So they kind of leave that out at trial. They don't even really bring it up. Because like, that would bring up a potential doubt. You would think. Yeah. So, like, don't pay attention to that. Don't look at the clowns over here. We've got this happening over here. Well, also, by the time they get to trial, boxes upon boxes, like four boxes of evidence are missing, including tapes, the glasses themselves, and almost all other physical evidence. 
a gentleman named Charles. So basically, they lost everything. Yes, pretty much everything was gone. A former neighbor named Charlie Williamson, he was a former neighbor and a co-worker of Dennis Perry's, he testified that he drove Perry to work that day. He even said, yeah, I teased him because I was like, hey, man, you look like that composite sketch. Did you do it? <laughs> That's actually, that is probably the most believable thing because <laughs> your friends will always tease you if you're potentially a serial killer. Exactly. But if he was with him, he couldn't have committed the crime. And that's what he said. He was like, he was with me. There's no way he would have had time to commit this crime. So then we have another, that's, that's another issue in this, in this trial. Well, then. These are all good things for the defense because. You would think, right? You're like. Reasonable doubt, reasonable doubt, we're, reasonable we're doubt. We're racking up this reasonable doubt here, people. All right, it's looking good for yeah. us. Well, then along like came. special on reasonable doubt, aisle three. Yeah. Along comes Jane Beaver's, uh, Jane Beaver's testimony, Buzz's mom. Mm -hmm. So she already, we know what she said earlier in her interview with the, the, her initial interview with uh, Dale Bundy. She said that Mm -hmm. uh, Dennis Perry had told her that Harold had laughed at her, uh, laughed at him because he asked to borrow some money, which does not sound anything like Harold's nature, by the way, from everything that I've read and everything I've heard about him. He was just a really sweet stand-up guy. He was the kind of guy that would hold doors for women and like kind of tip his hat. He was very into his church. He was very into his wife. I mean, he and his wife had just celebrated their anniversary the day before the shooting. They went on a date to a new restaurant in town. Unfortunately, that restaurant was closed, so they happened to stop to a friend's house, Miss Cynthia, and Miss Cynthia cooked dinner for him. And Harold says, you know what, you're black. Damn, that is, that is a good friend. I know. I'm sorry. Like, I know. Like, if I go into a restaurant and it's closed, I have no friends who would I could show up at their house that would make me food. But he and his wife did. They show up at Miss Cynthia's house. That is house, awesome. And Harold says to her, uh, you know what? Your black eyed peas are better than what would have been at that restaurant anyway. So this oh. is the kind of guy that Harold was. So for yeah. for her to say, oh, Harold said he la- or excuse me, Dennis said Harold laughed at him. It makes no sense anyway. But she she I mean, maybe maybe Dennis asked for a million dollars. OK, maybe yeah. so. And Harold was like, ha ha, I'll give you a hundred. I got. three. Yeah, he's like, it. yeah, you're joking, right? Like. That doesn't make any sense. He doesn't seem like a guy who would laugh at something. Here's the thing about Jane. Jane said what she said, and she added to her testimony that Dennis Perry said, I always wanted to know what it was like to kill an N-word. Now I'm going to get me one. That's the second time he's mentioned that specific slur. So all that headway that Dennis Perry's attorneys made went right out the window with Jane Beaver's testimony. As it should. What was not brought up was the fact that Jane Beaver received $12,000 in reward money after the trial. Mm. It also was not brought up that her daughter Buzz never, ever believed that Dennis was guilty. And it was never mentioned. Her, Her medical records were never mentioned, stating that she suffered from delusional problems, hallucinations, and paranoia. So we got a potentially flawed witness who had a financial benefit Mm -hmm. to fingering this dude. Exactly. None of that was brought up. So, of course, when she says this, the jury hears this and instantly like, 
he did it. So, of course, yeah. the ret- how could you not? Exactly. The the jury returns a verdict of guilty. The district attorney offers a second plea because you remember the first. He offers a second plea. He says you waive the right to an appeal, and the state because they probably would have gone for the death penalty. So the district attorney oh, wow. says if you agree to waive your right to an appeal, the state will just give you two life sentences. But here's the thing. He asked Which to con- is death penalty in a different way. Exactly. He asked to confer with his family and they told him no. And they said, you have minutes to decide. So here he is, Dennis Perry. And I should say that Dennis, his friends kind of say he's mellow, but then his family say he was just kind of lazy. You know, he didn't really have a lot going for him. But I mean, I feel like that's the difference between your friends would call you mellow. Your family would be like, get a job. Exactly. So you've got poor Dennis Perry, who really didn't have much going. He had no car. He had no home. What does he have? And here he is. He's faced with this decision. Do I risk death penalty or do I just take life in prison? So he twice he, he took life in prison. And... It just kind of became surreal because kind of like in the, in the pandemic, every day feels exactly the same. You know, yeah. you wake up, you do stuff, you go to bed. You wake up, you do stuff, you go to bed. And that's what was going on with Dennis. He's, you know, while he was in prison, he wrote poems. He read the Bible. He drew. He ended up divorcing his wife because he told her, look, this isn't, this isn't what you signed up for. Yeah, so that's he, not, yeah. Understandably, he's like, this isn't how we planned on having a relationship. Uh, he he even got a job in the commissary. Well, now remember, 2003 is when he goes away. In 2007, <laughs> he receives a letter from a woman named Brenda Hahn. Brenda is a woman he just knew in passing. She, Brenda, I guess, thought more about him than maybe he remembered about her because she remembered a night many years before when he had asked for a ride somewhere and she'd, she'd given him a ride and just as a thank you, he placed a little sweet kiss on her cheek. And it's oh. it stuck with her. She didn't yeah. pursue it because she was newly married at the time. But apparently that kiss just always stuck with her. So she wrote him a letter and they continued corresponding until finally it was time for a phone call. And when he called, I love this. He calls and he says, do you know who this is? It's the rest of your life. Oh, I know, right? You're kind of like I don't want to like you, but that's a kind of a cool line. But you're a murderer. I, mean, so I don't want to know. Yeah, no, that, that was that was like full on like bachelor, right? Stuff. Right. Yeah. Well, they got married in 2009 at Autry State Prison, and Brenda has always been one of his most vo- vocal advocates. The most they are allowed is a, a brief hug and a kiss. When she goes to visit him on Saturday and they spend, you know, hours together, about five hours together, Saturdays, and and that's it. Well, in late March, (laughs) this is where we get some more twists and turns. Of this year. In late March of this year, of 2020. COVID life. Perry's attorneys. So the Georgia Innocence Project got involved in Perry's case. And in late March, his attorneys... Okay, now remember the glasses are missing, but they still had some DNA results. Right. So got some of the information, they don't have the physical glasses. Right. So they took the DNA test results to Brunswick 
Judicial Circuit Court District Attorney Jackie Johnson. The Georgia Innocence Project and King & Spaulding Law Firm filed a motion for a new trial on April 27th of this year. On May 2nd, D.A. Johnson asked the Georgia Bureau of Investigation to reopen the investigation, citing the DNA evidence. Hmm. In the new trial motion, the attorneys argue that Perry never would have been prosecuted if this DNA evidence had been put into, had been presented in court. Right. Now, it presents way more than reasonable doubt. Now, it, I got to tell you about this DNA evidence that they found. Uh-oh. Now, you remember suspect number two that was just kind of written off real fast because yeah. his boss provided an alibi for him. Yeah, he had way too much information about his boss. Well, that wasn't really his boss. Now, remember, they said it was a guy named Donald Mosley. On re-interview, the boss's name was actually David Mobley, and he had no recollection of ever offering Spar an alibi. He said he never even had an employee named David Mobley. Spar was a really bad dude. Eric's a bad dude. Uh, His first wife has a recording of him. He's real violent. And his first wife had a twin. And they've got a recording. He's very abusive. And they've got a recording of him saying, I'm the MFR that killed those two N-words in that church. And I'm going to kill you and your whole damn family if I have to do it in a church. Spar off. He, he really likes killing people in churches. Apparently, that's his that's his mo. Don't be in a church around Eric Spar. Jeez. Uh, he also had three pair of glasses. One pair was made out of some other pairs. This is what his ex wife is saying. He was a welder and he worked for a trucking company. On March tenth of nineteen eighty six, police had a tip and they searched his house and they're looking for any links. They don't find anything. So that was kind of why he was ruled out in the beginning. So he was actually married twice. His second wife, uh, her name is Rhonda. She contacted the sheriff's office. She actually contacted the sheriff's office several times. She said she had some information to share. She said one day earlier in the year, in 1988, she and Spar got into a disagreement and he held her down with a pillow over her face. She said she fought to get free. And then for some unknown reason, he brought up these murders, just like he did with his first ex-wife. I'm, I'm going to kill you, just like I killed them. She also mentions that he's a white supremacist. Dale Bundy looks into this, and in, into Spar, but he, he dismisses him because Rhonda claims that Spar used a shotgun when it was really a handgun. So that's why he's dismissed. Well, they've got, they've got the hair, and they test the hair... Are you still following me? Because I feel like I'm jumping all over the place, which I am because this, no, 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 no. this story just goes you. all over the place. Okay, so they test. So like, they're testing the hair, they test and the they've hair. got the hair from the from the glasses. Right. But there were no right. roots on the hair. So what they had to do, it was called a mitochondrial DNA test. And what they do it's is kind. <laughs> they take the mother's hair because they test on the maternal side. So yeah. they got his mom to come in and to provide a hair sample. That hair sample was a match with 99.6%. 
which that seems pretty definitive. It means that, yeah, it kind of had to be him, right? Right. Because like, did she have like other random children that were running around killing people and being white supremacists? Exactly. Basically, there it's like one in like two hundred and fifty people it could have matched, but that's his mother. So obviously, you put that with the glasses with what he said. It's got to be him, right? And so this actually ties back to the Golden State Killer thing. Yes. Because of the DNA. Exactly. It's family. It's family. They're and that's how they found the Golden State Killer. Because of family. So, like I said, the mom provides a hair sample. And it's 99.6 match. It's really significant. Because, like I said, you factor in the DNA. You've got the statements from the ex-wives. You've got the glasses themselves. But Dennis is still in jail. But his attorneys have presented this DNA evidence. They get the... And I am happy to say that as of... We're recording this. As of our recording of this, Dennis has been out about a week. So this is like brand new. This is brand new. But it doesn't end there. I got a little no. bit more before I before I end and turn it over to you. Okay. Now, Gladys Spar, Eric's mom, well... The story doesn't end so well for Gladys. She was 79 oh. years old and mm. she was found dead in her home on Sunday, July 19th. Oh, no. So like 10 days ago. Yeah. Brantley County Sheriff's, Depart- uh, Sheriff's Department deputies found her dead in her home. Georgia Bureau of Investigation oh. agent Stacy Carson was interviewed and declined whether to say the death was suspicious or natural causes. Gladys was last seen alive on Friday, July 17th. So you've got the fact that his mom has now died. She provided the hair sample, the glasses, and both of his ex-wives talk about him being a supremacist and violent, and he admitted to murders to them. Eric Spar still not arrested. They're awaiting autopsy. Really? They're awaiting autopsy results right now. How is he still out there? Like, dude's got to have a parking ticket. Just pick him up. He's got to have. He's got some weed on him. He's got something. He's got something. He like he didn't signal properly when he switched lanes. Yeah. Come on. I mean, you give tickets out left and right. Find something. Just follow him around for a day. Right. Oh, you jaywalked. Boom. Right. Go to jail. Oh, that light was red and you went under it. You didn't. You missed yeah. it. I got to pull. That was not a full and complete stop and a stop sign. Time to go to jail, buddy. I mean, there has got to be something. Did you have an open container? I mean, something. Why is this? Did you look at me wrong? Like people get arrested for nothing. And this guy's walking out just on the street. As of when I checked earlier today, he had still not been arrested. And we still don't have the results from his mother's autopsy. He probably killed his mom. Of course he killed his mom. Let's come on. But my thing is, she already gave the sample. Why kill her now? Well, he's a bad person. He doesn't make good decisions. At all. Yeah. He's a, I feel like ugh. if if he'd have thought this through, he would have killed mom years ago. <sighs> but good news is Dennis Perry, who has always maintained his innocence, is home. He is free. And he is off to and his new life with his wife. And he's married again. Like, this dude has had several marriages while being in jail, which, damn, what am I doing with my life? <laughs> and I guarantee that he's going to get some money. 
He's oh yeah, he's getting that bag. Somebody, somebody's gonna get sued. Oh yeah. Well, the fact that they didn't bring up the DNA evidence from the glasses—that's just. Also, his defense attorneys. Come on. And I don't know. Like, you know, I don't know the full story on his. Did you not attorneys. watch? I don't know if he had you know state representation at the time. Yeah, but they held the glasses in the unsolved mysteries episode in 1988 right you don't gotta do a lot of discovery there just like <laughs> oh hey watch a tv show be like let's ask questions about that that seems weird well and the fact that they didn't bring up jane beaver's mental health the fact that they didn't bring up that she was getting a reward for her testimony yeah. for turning him in all of this all like his attorneys missed a ton of crap or just weren't looking that hard and a lot of people kind of think that it was a political move you know it wasn't necessarily against dennis it was just let's get this case solved and we gotta get this case solved yeah he kind of fit the bill it's been 15 years there was a tv show about it we hired this one guy for a year and he's been around for eight so yeah it's I could see how that would happen. Yeah. Like sometimes you just need a conviction. Especially in small, in small towns. Well, even well, in big towns. I'm, 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 yeah, I was going to say, like, I don't think it matters about the towns because every, every big town is just a collection of small towns. There you go. There is the B side. All right, joining us today on the A-Side, B-Side podcast is uh, director, writer, film producer, Sean Lindsay. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? Good. So, man, you just are doing some exciting things. Okay, so I'm going to give a little background and you tell me if I'm correct. You decided, you know what? I like film. I've never gone to film school, but I'm going to figure this thing out. I'm going to figure this puppy out and I'm going to do it. And you did it, which kudos to you. So tell us about your first film and what made you decide to do it or your first show, I should say. That sounds pretty much about right. Um, Yeah, because I never had any experience. I never had any desire to do film I didn't and none of that whatsoever I just happened to be a Walking Dead fan and we were traveling through Atlanta Georgia and I said it would be cool to stop in here and see some of the sets that they were working on and it just so happened they were filming that day and I thought it was really cool to see the equipment they were using and to see that literally they were there were hundreds of cops there's kind of coordinating off the area so that no one can kind of get close to the film crew and it was just this huge bustling crowd of people and I'm like that's interesting because you don't see that on TV. Right. What we see on TV is this desolate wasteland almost. And I thought it was so cool to be able to take what is actually happening and show something completely different. I thought, so I want to go back home and I want to make my own show. And so happened I love zombies, so I decided to make my own show, Remnant 13. And I just kind of came back home, figured out what I needed to do, kind of Googled <laughs> and YouTubed um, what a film crew was, and I just kind of got to work and I just did it. Man, kudos to you for that because so many people have dreams, but they never actually follow through. And and you you not only followed through, you went above and beyond, and you got your show on Amazon Prime. Well, I did, and I appreciate that. Yeah, as they say, the first step is is always the hardest. And, you know, once you get going, it seems like it gets a little easier. So Now, you said your show is about zombies. Right now, we're in the middle of a pandemic, which means we're just kind of at home looking for stuff to do. This is the perfect opportunity to just sit down and have a watch. Yeah, I mean, that, that's true. I mean, it's like I said, it's a, it's a zombie show. And 
everybody loves zombies. They've been around forever. And, I mean, it's, it's a quick watch. It's, you know, it's four episodes for the first season. They're only 15 minutes apiece. So, so 16 minutes. And, yeah, it's a very quick watch. And, you know, a lot of a lot of people are just sitting at home and streaming uh, new shows and new movies. So it'd be a great watch for, you know, anybody that's, who loves horror or loves zombies to kind of get on there and take a look at. Now, you filmed in Bowling Green, which is where you're from. Will we see anything familiar in the scenes? I would say if you're looking, you will. And we filmed everything here in Bowling Green, with the exception of one thing that was actually in Todd County, which, you know, 45 minutes from here Mm -hmm. at Todd County High School. Um, But, yeah, there's a lot of, especially out Southville Road area, um, Lover's Lane, if you look and pay attention, you'll definitely see some familiar places that, that, that you may know. Now, of course, Bowling Green, home stomping grounds of a horror movie legend, John Carpenter. Did that influence you at all? I love John Carpenter. It's actually, uh, the very first horror movie I ever saw was actually the original Halloween. <laughs> and for the longest time, I, based on everything that was said in that movie... I thought it was actually filmed here in Bowling Green. <laughs> and I got so excited I used to go looking for the places that were in that movie <laughs> and kind of find out it was actually filmed in, in, in Hollywood. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but he had you convinced. Was, no, he did. I mean, because literally, you know, that Michael Myers escaped from the Smith Grove Warren County Sanitarium, which was literally supposed to be like five minutes from my house. Oh, I could wow. not find a sanitarium anywhere. <laughs> and, um, but yeah, no, I, I'm a huge John Carpenter fan. And literally, we just got to be watching the new... Uh, the new Halloween 2 that he just kind of rebooted with um, some other directors. And, oh, yeah, John Carpenter is a huge influence of mine. Probably one of the, to me, one of the best horror director writers that's currently in there. Now, you kind of are also starting into the mu- music producing element. So what would you say is your favorite song from a soundtrack? Well, I got when, when you ask me about soundtracks, the first one I've got to say is probably still Kiss from a Rose. I mean, I'm actually not a huge comic fan, but, you know, I am a huge Batman fan, and that's probably the one that does stands out the most to me. That's probably one of the most popular soundtrack songs out there as far as soundtracks and music goes. All right, Sean, we thank you so much for joining us. Tell us how we can find Remnant 13. As we were talking about earlier, it's on Amazon Prime. And it's actually about to be on a couple of different other Roku, Roku channels as well. Um, but yeah, just go to Amazon Prime and search for Remnant 13, and you'll be able to watch that and any other short films that we've put out so far. Before we let you go, what do you have coming up project-wise? Well, we are actually in the process of developing a reality TV show that we're going to film here in Bowling Green. And we are currently in talks with a couple different networks and a couple stars out of LA to be our host so that's going to be something exciting it's going to be a little bit of a different take on reality TV it's going to have a lot of the, the drama but it's not going to be so much of a strength based agility type of training it's definitely going to be more of a mental mind game type of reality show so it's going to be interesting to watch awesome well keep us posted and hopefully you'll come back on the podcast with us alright well thank you guys for having me it's been a pleasure thanks so much It's now time for the A-side, which often gets a little weird. But this time... No! I'm just kidding. I know, shocking, I'm just right? kidding. This time, we're talking about music. We've talked about movies, Wilford Brimley, 
was in a Star Wars movie. We talked about people that I, I really enjoy as that guy in that thing, like Timothy Elmanson, who has not retweeted us yet, but I'm still hoping. I know. I'm really disappointed. I think I should tweet at him and say, hey, buddy, I'm verified. I mean, you better retweet me. I, I tweeted both at Wilfred Brimley and Timothy Elmanson. So uh, evidently, my 300 followers don't cal- carry a lot of weight. So uh, <laughs> things to learn. Uh, <laughs> As I mentioned last week. Can I just say, I was totally kidding about the verified. I I appreciate that I'm verified, but I don't think that people really retweet me because of that. No, no. The blue check, the blue check matters. The blue check plays. Okay. Like I've also recently rewatched all of the Ocean's Eleven movies. So I'm going to be like, the nose plays. You should you should be proud of that. All right, I'm going to use that. Uh, I I thought about getting like a like a fake blue check. So uh, one of my one of my favorite stories about Tinder, uh, which this is already going down a dark way, but one of my favorite stories about Tinder in the early days was there's this dude who photoshopped a frame around his picture that said your Tinder pick of the day. Oh, wow. So so he would pop up and they'd be like, oh, this guy has been, Tinder says, I should like this guy because we have a lot in common. And it was complete baloney. <laughs> he, ju- he just made that happen. And I was like, you, sir, will probably end up being our president one day. Right. Which, which is scary in itself. But so as I promised last week, today we're going to talk about music. Okay. So for me, the most formative years of media and movies and music and television were the 90s. I was 10 to slightly more than 10 during the 90s. And <laughs> slightly more than 10. <laughs> slightly more than 10. And one thing that always seemed like a big part of 90s media and music and movies was soundtracks. Mm-hmm. Like if you were going to have a big movie, it was going to have one song with it that became like the number one song in the country. Which is not something we do anymore because, like, there's 37 different charts and whatnot. But it used to be, like, Rick Dees and Casey Kasem would have their, like, Sunday show where they would tell you what was the best song in the world. And then Carson Daly came along and he'd be like, hey, this is the best music video in the world. And more often than not, in the 90s, those songs came from movies. Everything from, like, Whitney Houston in... The Bodyguard? uh, the Bodyguard, yes, oh, thank yes. you, reading my mind, all the way to like Forrest Gump suddenly brought like oldies back to the mainstream. It, Forrest Gump was a two CD soundtrack. What? Yes, you you had if you bought the Forrest Gump soundtrack, it had two CDs because there were so many songs in that movie because it spanned like you know fifty years of American history and the music was so good. And then you go back to like Armageddon. No one can look at animal crackers the same way without ever, without thinking of that song by Aerosmith from Armageddon, which I don't want to mention it because I'll start singing it. I almost did. I almost did. Yeah. You know it right away. And let's be honest. There was a recent Men in Black movie starring Chris Hemsworth and Tessa Thompson which they're both amazing. So that movie should have done really, really well. And it kind of flopped because they didn't use the Will Smith Men in Black theme song in the movie at all. Man, that was disappointing. It was, you know... I I wanted it to be good. I actually own it on DVD because I like them so much. And then also, uh, my my guy who was in Stuber and... uh, Oh my Dave gosh! Why am I forgetting his name? Batista, Dave Batista. No, 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 no. The other, the other one. Oh, um, um oh, because he's in Lovebirds. Um, 
Yes, he's a lump who's so good as well. Uh, oh, my goodness. Well, he's going to be that guy from that thing next week because I can't remember. Kamal Najani. Yes. Love that guy. Love him. So good. He's He plays like the little tiny, like the little alien computer generated character. Yeah. yeah. And he's very good. Like the movie is not bad. It's better than Men in Black 3. Probably better than Men in Black 2. No. But mm, no. I'm going to say, yeah. I'm going to say it. Mm-mm. See, that's where we come in, A side, B side, because it's not. It's good. It's not better than two. It's better than three, though. Oh, yeah. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, yeah. microwave popcorn's better than three. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, 90s was like the time when every movie had this awesome song with it that became a huge hit. And so I got used to having soundtrack. Like, I probably bought more soundtracks in the 90s than I did like regular band CDs. Because why not buy Batman Forever CD and get all the songs from the movie Mm -hmm. rather than buying 12 different CDs where you're only going to really want one song off of them. Right. It was brilliant. So one of my favorite soundtracks from the 90s and early 2000s is the Shrek movie soundtrack. Oh, man. That is a good one. It's so good. And I also like, and this goes back to, I have this theory that you have to experience things, music, movies, TV shows in the right moment. Because we've all had those friends who are like, oh, no, you should watch the show. It'd be so great. You'd love it. And then you watch it and you're like, nah. Yeah. It's okay. But then there's a other show that you've seen and it connects with a moment in your life that makes it more poignant and more powerful Mm -hmm. so shrek in 2001 was one of the first movies that i went to with my soon-to-be girlfriend fiance wife ex-wife but that's a nice thought right there yeah it really tells the entire story and like the whole thing (laughs) but it was one of the first things dates that we went on and then we bought the soundtrack because we loved the music from that movie so much and went on a road trip from Minneapolis and St. Paul, Minnesota, all the way to Hickory, North Carolina for a wedding. And it was just the two of us. And we're like early, like this is like maybe four, five months into our relationship. So this is a big move. Like you're going on a road trip together. Music is important. Mm-hmm. And we picked this soundtrack as like, we both knew we liked all the songs. So we have very different musical takes. Always have, always will. But this is the one thing that we could truly agree on. So we listened to that soundtrack probably a dozen times between Minneapolis and St. Paul. We'd stopped in Chicago. We stopped in Cleveland. We went down all the way to North Carolina. We uh, almost got lost in the backwoods of North Carolina. Yikes. Uh, because uh, this was before Google Maps. So we're like literally using like, do you remember Follow That Bird? No. Oh, you don't remember Follow That Bird? What is that? Uh, so Follow That Bird was a Muppets movie about oh, Big Bird. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I thought you were yeah. saying that it was like some kind of um, GPS system. And I was like, no, I've no, no, never no. heard of that. Okay, yes. Although that would be a great GPS system. We should do that. <laughs> Partner with the Muppets. Pat and Follow That Bird. The new way. Yeah. It's, it's just it's just Big Bird being like, you can do it. Uh, but in Follow That Bird, everybody's used it. Like, they're all driving around. They got these giant maps. So we stopped and we bought one of these atlases that is, like, super huge format. It's probably, like, two feet by three feet. Dude, have you not and, heard of AAA? What is wrong with you? Well, it was it was 2001. Triptychs. Well, yeah, whoa, no. 
No triptychs for me. That's too many. This is in one book. It's like a book. You're just like reading a book. Triptych, you just like, flip the page. Well, yeah, because you got to tell them where you're going. I don't know. I don't trust them. I don't know. <laughs> okay. So we got these big atlas, and we're like driving through North Carolina. We're listening to the Shrek soundtrack, and we almost get lost, and we get there eventually, and we, there's a wedding, and we turn around, and we drive all the way back. But one song on that album that is, is kind of embarrassing. Like, I love music. I feel like I know a lot about music. But in 2001, at the age of 20, I did not know the song Hallelujah by Leonard Cohen. <gasps> Until I had, until I heard it in Shrek, that was the first time I had ever heard Hallelujah. Now everybody on American Idol sings it like three times, but back then I was like, "Is this a new song? Who is this artist who's singing this?" And so Rufus Wainwright mm-hmm. was the one who sang it in Shrek, and that to this date is his like his biggest hit was because of that movie. And so we're listening to the track and everything. And I'm like, this is great. And then she's like, hey, do you want to go see this guy in concert when we get back to Minnesota? And I'm like, sure. Concerts are good. I like concerts. That should be fun. I like live and music. I like live music. I like to have a good time. I like, you know, I like to party. Uh, and <laughs> what I didn't realize is that she was actually inviting me to a Tori Amos concert. And this is, so I'm 20 years old. And I grew up with not a lot of understanding of different music styles. And I was also very, and probably still to this day, deal with this idea of toxic masculinity. So I thought, well, Tori Amos, that's girl music. Oh boy. Did she slap you? Did she punch you? Did she throw no. punch you? Because thank God I didn't say it out, out loud. But I'm like, oh, okay. I'll go see this because the guy from the Shrek album is going to be there so he'll be the opener so it'll be cool thinking that like it was going to be all about like the shrek music and we get there and we're at uh so it, the university of minnesota has this beautiful auditorium uh it is old school and you've got like the main floor and you got the balcony and they got all the other balconies on the side and we're there and rufus wainwright is opening for torians and i'm you know, like, okay, I'm going to hear this one song that I know it's cool. And I'm here because my girlfriend likes this music and I'm just, you know, I'm tough and I'm just doing this for her. And it was the absolute perfect time to challenge everything I knew about music. Good. Because Rufus gets on there and he plays every other song that he has. Except none that of which, <laughs> never, None of which I have heard before. And, and he did eventually play it at the, the encore. But at that point, after listening to everything that he's played. And I mean, most people may know him from just playing Hallelujah. Man is a second generation pop idol. Like his father was uh, Luden Raidwright, who was sort of a folk artist. And he is just exceptionally good at playing music. Mm-hmm. And somehow you're in this giant old school opera house and it sounds like he's only singing to you. There is a connection. There is a soul furnace to the voice that just resonates. And so I forgot I was, I was waiting for Hallelujah. Cause again, I didn't realize it was somebody else's song. I thought it was his song, 20 year old Adam. He plays Hallelujah, tears, just, I am loving it. And then Tori comes on and Tori's amazing. And I'm like, I don't care if this is girl music or guy music, this is just really great. And in that moment, I experienced everything in an entirely different way. 
I had heard Tori Amos songs before, mm-hmm. but I wasn't ready to hear them. I didn't appreciate them. I wrote them off. I, it was like, oh, this isn't for me. But in the moment, and when you can find that moment where you discover something that is brand new, even if you've heard it before, but you experience it in an entirely different way, that is what makes media and connection work. And I will look back at that moment, that show, and I went to several other Tori Amos shows after that because one, married, and two, she was amazing. But every time I went, whether it was Rufus Wainwright as the opener or Ben Folds or, or somebody else, when you are in the right moment and you experience things in the right way, you can see things that you've seen before in an entirely different way. And it's one thing that I have talked with my kids about is it's hard to stop your, your mental biases, Mm -hmm. you know, like you think, Oh, well, this isn't for me or that's somebody else's or that's somebody else's favorite song or that's somebody else's favorite show. And sometimes when you experience that same thing in a different environment or at the right time, it changes everything about it. And you can see it in an entirely new way. And this all came kind of back home in the last week because Rufus Wainwright has released a brand new album. And I was like, I don't know, Rufus, like he's he's kind of a one trick pony. Like I know he's gonna be like really soulful and like it's, his voice is pretty great and everything, but it's, you know, I don't know if that's for me right now. And then I decided, okay, I'm just gonna put it on. And it's been stupid hot in Minnesota for like two months. It's but like, we haven't had a day under 80. It's very weird. Evidently, we're way too close to the sun all of a sudden. <laughs> uh, and so I went outside and I was like on the porch and I'm like, I'm going to do this like whole being outside thing and just sweating the dogs, like doing her thing. And she's sitting down and, and just panting a lot, very rhythmically. And, and I put on the new R- Rufus Wainwright album, mm-hmm. which is Unfollow the Rules. And it was the perfect moment for me to dip my toes back into that pool because I was hot. I was tired. I was kind of just worn out. Like everything seemed so thick in the air. And then all of a sudden this voice just gently, painfully, truthfully wafts over. Mm -hmm. And I sat there on the porch and I sweated for like two hours and listened to the thing back to back. And it was one of those moments where I said, okay, if I was listening to this when I was working or I was in the car or when I was trying to do something else, it wouldn't have been the right moment. Yeah. But right now, listening to his voice and kind of hearing all the things. And it's funny, like earlier we mentioned uh, being big somewhere. And he's got this entire song about being big. And you're not, you're not big until you're big in Wichita or something. And he just mentions all these random places where it's like, it used to be like you had to be big in Nashville or big in LA to be an artist, but now you can be from anywhere and you can be big. And it was just perfect. And so I wanted to talk about that because one soundtracks were the stuff in nineties. Oh yeah, absolutely. 100%. And I feel like Guardians of the Galaxy, the first one, kind of brought it back a little bit. Yes. That's the only one I could think of in the last 20 years. Yeah. That wasn't a musical. Like, I mean, I listen to Hamilton a lot. Yeah. I listen to Rent a lot. But those are musicals. Like, there's, I listen to Galavant way too much. 
but those are musicals. Like you under like you expect them to have it. But like when was the last time other like Guardians of the Galaxy is the last one I could think of. Yeah. That had just like an amazing soundtrack. And now like it and again, it's like it's all about when you hear something and when you experience it. Now there are certain songs from that Guardians of the Galaxy album that I will hear on the jukebox at work and I know where in the movie they're playing. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm not thinking about like, oh, this is a 19, you know, 85 song. It's like, no, this is exactly when, like, uh, what's his name? Star Lord. Uh, uh, Star Lord gets abducted. I was like, this is this is the song he is abducted to, or this is when the like orange and uh, blue Ravager plane is flying through the atmosphere, and they cut it off before it gets really weird. Because there's that one song in the album which is like super rock for about 30 seconds, and then really ethereal after that mm-hmm. and it's very good because they cut it off in the movie because it's just him flying around and they're like oh, and we're done and then like on the tra- soundtrack it's like rock and then it's like oh this is very ethereal and weird and i didn't expect it so yeah i think the thing is to be open to experiencing things whenever you're going to experience them them and not prejudging because like i absolutely did i prejudged rufus wainwright because he was just that guy from truck mm-hmm. and i prejudged tori amos and here i am because she's just 20... yeah she's it's, it's girl music <laughs> right she sings about cornflakes which i didn't really understand at the time that was an entirely song about like being ostracized from your friends and what but still at the time i just thought it was about cornflakes <laughs> but you have this opportunity every time you hear something even if you've heard it before mm-hmm. to experience it in a new way and i think that is one of the under rated and sometimes forgotten because it's so easy now to be like i don't like this artist i don't like you know this recent album or like this isn't for me and then you may hear that same song at a different time and then it connects yeah like it doesn't always have to work the first time and sometimes it doesn't there's a lot of good music out there and sometimes you just haven't heard it at the right time the thing i miss most right now honestly is live music Mm mm-hmm there is something almost religious or magical about spiritual spiritual. Yeah. There, there it live music changes everything. Like if you don't like a song, go hear the artist perform it and tell me you don't like it because when you're there in the place where that magic is being created, even if it's not your jam, even if it's not a style of music that you enjoy, you're still going to feel something. Yeah. And I, one of my favorite things to do, there's a lot of great venues here in the Twin Cities. And one of them is the the Turf Club on University Avenue. And like when Lady Gaga was during her whole um, uh, folk music tour, right before she was doing that, she stopped and like went into the Turf Club and just on a random night performed as an opener for somebody else and played a lot of like the folk songs that she was working on. And Prince has been there and we've got First Ave and we've got a thousand different venues in the Twin Cities where when I was having a bad day, I could go and find live music. And that's that's my church. That's where I understand things. That's where I, that everything makes more sense. And without that, I'm struggling. Like, and I know a lot of people are. And I don't know. I know it's hard for artists. Like a lot of people that I follow are trying to do like streams and stuff, but it's just not the same. It's not the same. Like you, there is nothing that can replace the feeling of hearing a song performed live 
and there's nothing that will ever replace that. So I really hope we can get back to that because even doing it in like streams and stuff, it's just not the same. I have so many great stories about small clubs and going to see music and how it changes everything. Like if I was having a bad day in the last three months, if I've had a bad day, what, what would I want to do? I'd want to go see live music. Mm-hmm. It could be a cover band of seventies, like rock hits. It could be a gospel group that I've never heard of. It could be just like, some random dude with a guitar sitting at the coffee shop. It changes things. And so I hope we get back to that. And until we can look up the new Rufus Wainwright album, go on the porch, sweat a lot and try again some songs that you may not think are yours, but hear them in a different way. All right. I'm going to do it. Fun fact. Laura Dern was married to Ben. Ben told. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. I believe they're divorced now, but can you imagine that she was his muse? Oh yeah, I mean he's got some really great stuff. Um, I mean I still do not. I still like the like urban legend of the story about Brick. I still don't know what that song is about, but when it comes down, you better believe I'm going to sing. <laughs> I don't know what I'm singing about, but I'm sure as heck going to sing that song. <laughs> All right, so. We've, man, we've covered a lot. We've covered murder and intrigue and wrongful convictions. We've covered local. We had our first interview. We had our first interview and it was amazing. And thank you again to Sean Lindsay for joining us. That was awesome. And then soundtracks and live music. I do. I really do miss live music as well, man. I, there's just something about when you can think back on a show or you can look back on pictures or you can relate when you listen to the song and that artist has told you the meaning behind it or what inspired it or just the way they played it that particular yeah, night. Sometimes it's just like, hey, Chicago, I love you. Here's a song about stuff. Right. But they just play like, it yeah. in a way or they just change a couple of notes and you're like, man, that was just rocking, you know? So this is actually a perfect segue into the remix because you kind of just did the remix on mine. Yes. Where we talk about what we learned from the other one. Yes. And I gotta be honest, like your story is, I'm still a little twisted up. Like, if you hear that story and you don't get fired up, I don't think you care about life. I mean, I, I always pick the wrong thing to focus on in the stories. It's some minutia or something that like shouldn't probably be as important to me, but. But that's just you like, and how you relate to stories. That's, yeah. Like, how bad were those lawyers? Yeah. Like, there was DNA evidence and they did nothing? Yeah. Like this, this dude went to jail for a substantial period of time and pleaded to two life sentences, which I don't know, unless you're a vampire, that's going to be a long time. And somehow it took like that many years for them to look at it again. Like, like you said, it feels like there was a, there was a political pressure or there was the fix was in, or they just wanted to get this over with. So nobody was going to like try that hard, but man, like it, frustrates me how many times it feels like somebody doing a simple DNA test could get somebody who was wrongfully convicted at jail. Like it happens way too often. That's why it's groups like the Innocence Project and Equal Justice Initiative. They make such a difference. And perfect segue, they need our help. They need our support. And you can do that on our 
a website, which is a side, b side podcast.com. You can donate, you can figure out how you can volunteer because it happens way too often. Yeah. And we, we have lots of links there. We're very good at linking to stuff. We are very good at linking. And I lied. It's not Ben Folds. It's Ben Harper. Anyway. um, Okay. But that also makes sense because that dude is also one of my favorites. So Ben Harper, Ben Folds, and then you've got Joe Johnson. Like all those guys, that's like a, like a Mount Rushmore minus one of like folksy sort of like, I'd like to hang out with that guy, but he might be a dick sort of like, you like, you never know, <laughs> but you kind of want to be his friends, but you're also like, ah, I don't know. You're talking about a lot of stuff in public. So maybe I don't want to tell you anything. And so. and he came out in an interview, Ben Folds came out in an interview and said that the song is about his first girlfriend and having to terminate her pregnancy. Okay. So that's yes. what it's about. Okay. Still going to sing it. Cause that is a, that is a rough song. I, and I, and it's meant to be like, and all, it's meant to be, obviously. Yeah. So um, just never do what I did and sing it at karaoke. Karaoke. <laughs> or karaoke, whatever, however you want to pronounce it. That oh, is a downer. Oh, gosh. Uh, no, nobody's joining in on the refrain. <laughs> you want to oh, kill man. a room. All right. Final Ooh. thoughts? Uh, this was really great. We've been all over the place. We even started recording earlier tonight, and I think we're going to end up about the same time as we did yeah. uh, usually. So I think that's a good sign. I'm very much enjoying doing this. And um, I don't know, with everything that is so chaotic in life right now, whether it's jobs or do we go outside? Do we not go outside? Do we have the money to pay our bills next week? Is there a stimulus? Uh, will we all die of COVID? It's really nice to have something consistent and enjoyable. And I mean, at this point, three weeks in, this is my seventh longest relationship. Oh, there it is. Let's go. We're working for six goals. Goals. <laughs> Thanks to everyone that has checked out our website. Everybody that's liked us on Facebook. Uh, we thank you so much because this is just something we love to do. And we thank you so much for coming on this journey with us. Yeah. And it's been really, really cool to have the feedback. Uh, and, you know, I'm kind of shocked. Nobody's heckled me yet. And I'm kind of disappointed in that because I know there's people out there just Oh, waiting. I heckle you all the time. Well, you have, <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I knew that was coming. I know there are people listening to this who are like, Adam, come on. And I haven't heard it yet. So feel free to Facebook him. Where you at? Yeah, where you at? <laughs> all right. It's been great. Thanks, Adam. Love you. Thank you for joining us for another episode of A-Side, B-Side podcast. We really hope you enjoyed the episode. And if you did, we'd appreciate it if you'd head on over to Apple and leave us a rating or a review. And make sure you come back next Friday for another episode.